Hi everyone and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. The idea behind these podcasts is to find a better way of us being able to create performance. So we're interested in understanding ourselves, our teams and culture and supporting other people along the way. And we're also interested in the science behind high performance as well as the art of how we actually go about delivering it. And then asking, of course, the questions about why do we do what we do? We're keen to explore all the key areas, what are the determining factors of high performance? Get to know some of the people along the way who've been responsible for driving high performance. And we'll be trying to learn the lessons. How can we all develop so that where we're looking back over our lives, that we can be content with what we've achieved but also be proud about the way that we've done it. You can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes and supportingchampions.co.uk to get these insights straight to your inbox. Hi everyone and welcome to Supporting Champions. I'm joined once again by Rosie Mays from the EB Centre and Jamie Pringle from Performance Science Distillery. Well today we're going to be talking about culture. Now Coventry was recently awarded the city of culture so it needs talking about for a start <laughs> um, but why, why else are we talking about culture at the moment Rosie? Why are we talking about culture? I think culture is the thing that really underpins performance I think the culture whether it be in the workplace whether it be in sport are the critical components that will enable people to be successful or not and I think the challenge is what do we mean by culture? What is, what is culture? And I guess in a really simplistic way is these are the things we do do around here and these are the things we don't do. And, and uh, being clear about what that is. And often that will be unconscious. We don't even think about it. We don't even bring it into our consciousness. Mm. That, that's my sense of why it's important to talk about culture at a very simplistic work level. It's in, the, it's in the news at the moment in terms of thinking about uh, high performance cultures in sport. Uh, a number of businesses uh, have a, an increasing responsibility, social responsibility, um, rather than just pushing for more. So it's, it's very much in the, in the news at the moment. Yeah, I think so. I think whether it be the, the news that's coming out about do we push athletes too hard, how do we look after their welfare, right through to the business end of things, what's happening in government, of, of women speaking out and the Me mm. Too campaign, whether it's the Harvey Weinstein over in the States and all that's coming out there. And I think for so long we've lived in a society where the unspoken hasn't been spoken. And we've come mm. to a time now where the unspoken is beginning to be spoken and spoken out loud. So then you have a choice of, do I want to deal with it and address it? Or do we just keep pushing it under the carpet that these things aren't what we want to do? Uh, and I think that there's, there's the flip side, as, as you know, Jamie alludes to often, which is, and it's not just the bad side, it's the good side. Mm. How do we pay attention to what we do well that enhances performance in the workplace or on the sporting field? Uh, and how do we replicate that? If, if it's so unconscious we don't even know what we've been doing, then it's really difficult to learn from that. You, said, you mentioned performance as an, an, an enhancement of performance, culture as an enhancement. Is culture itself a performance determinant? Could you ascribe a success, uh, an achievement, to the fact that that's born out of the culture that has uh, created that? Or a failure out of the culture that's created that? Um, the instant response is yes. yes. If you've got a, a threatening culture where people are in fear, 
we know that fear will impact on performance. Yeah. If, if people uh, don't know whether they're valued, don't know who they are, uh, then having that self-esteem and that self-worth piece is not going to play into their performance. So I think there's many cultures yeah. that have been cultures of fear mm. in the workplace, in society. We often talk, don't we, around athletes who succeed in spite of all that's around them. And then the occasional one where you actually, and it's probably the fact you say it's occasional, maybe it's because it's not as, not as common, exactly, that those athletes who succeed because of the environment that's around them. Yes. But we see probably more examples of the in spite of, or we have them maybe previously. I wonder if you you wouldn't be able to ascribe it to a determinate performance because it's why not it's quite a nebulous thing it's quite you know it's out there in the ether that that has perhaps not been captured or you probably can't measure it in an increasingly quantified society hmm. or can or can you because it's it's difficult to pin down that we're adding so much value to the the things that we can measure as opposed to the sense and the feel of a, of a place. That's a good question. Could you, could you put culture on a dashboard of metrics? Well, you can in business, and you can in society. So there's been quite a lot of uh, research work that's been done looking at what are the components in different countries that, that make up cultural differences. So, I mean, we can look at that a little bit later on. I think what we're looking at here is if we know we can, if you know you can do it across countries, can you take it right down to performance? Yeah. Can you, what is the culture that's needed for us to achieve elite performance would be where I'd be coming from and I think probably where all of us would be coming from on this conversation. What are the component parts that if you want success in, in performance, you need to create a culture that will enable that? And are we able to identify what are those component parts of the culture, our ways of being, our values, our, our just what we do do and what we don't do again, you know, that, that mm. would be where I would go. Now whether, we, whether that's been quantified in sport yet, I don't know, you know, whether then we're moving to that to say this is, this is the culture of high performance sport that we know works. Mm. I, think, I think we know some of it. I think we're not yet there in terms of uh, getting it completely right. So if you, if you go into a, an organisation or visit a high performance centre, how quickly can you pick it up, do you think? That's a good question. Um, I think you can pick it up when it's failing very quickly because of the things you've probably just described around how people behave or how they maybe behave in, when they're in a group, in a public setting, or how they behave in private, and sometimes those contrasts to the things you pick up and you say, listen, you know, the truth, the transparency, the openness, the honesty, I think you can pick that up quite quickly. I've had experiences of that. Um, when it's thriving, mm. I think it might be more <clears throat> subtle in some cases. That's not to say that that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's potentially a good thing, because it, it's not, you know, it's something because it's the way people are, as opposed to something they're trying to do. So it might be more subtle, but that's, um, I think there were more examples of when it's failing that you would see, I would suggest. Mm. Yeah. From my background of being trained as a coach in business and as a supervisor of coaches, we were, we were informed when you go into an organisation, look around, 
what's your first impression? Pick up the vibe as soon as you come in through the door. What are you noticing? Mm. So I remember going to an insurance company and there were sanitizers on the desks as you came in. And I'm thinking, yes, it's quite a stark environment here. It's an insurance company. Why wouldn't it be? You know, yeah. but it was suddenly seeing, oh, there's a sanitizer. Uh, so I think intuitively now, if I would go into a building, I'd be, I'd be looking for signs, you know, because culture is uh, seen by the emblems, the pictures on the wall, the cleanliness, you yeah. know, it says yeah. something about the centre, the organisation. Uh, and so I think, I think what you're saying about the human piece, you pick up emotionally, don't you? You pick up yeah. without a lot of words. We're humans who connect resonance through our through our brains and our emotional system. So I think you get a sense of, oh, something's good around here. Yeah. Um, and then there's some obvious visuals that you go, hmm, <laughs> not sure about that, or, oh, that's interesting. So if you went into somewhere and you saw that, you know, somebody's printed these out, put them on the wall, mission statements, values, how does that actually permeate into the realities of the people using that place? You know, the people maybe not being involved with actually writing that mission statement and painting it up on the wall, but they are the day-to-day -day users. How does that permeate? How does that actually translate into behavior of the day-to-day -day behavior? Because I think there's a risk there, that this, if it's a top-down approach and someone says, right, we're gonna you know, list our top 10 values here and we'll put them up on the wall, that the member of staff or the user or the whoever it is goes, I'm not involved in that, I'm just getting on with my thing. And that's potentially almost, you know, uh, almost a contrast which illustrates it's not working. Yeah, I, I, I would test, you know, if there's values on the wall and it was a new place I'd go into, I'd be going, oh, tell me how you've lived creative today. You mm. know, I'd, I'd be wanting to find out from the people. Uh, I, I think there's a parallel in all of this which says, how do we all get involved in creating the culture that's going to be successful? Mm. So whether it's how do we create the values that are up on the wall in the businesses, or how do we create the way we work around here, you know, yeah. our, and our explicit um, ground rules or our implicit ground rules, I think it's, it's the same thing. The ownership is critical because you all need to buy into that culture for it to be successful. You only need one person who's negative to tip the balance um, in the social system that, that will get in the way of performance. So uh, I think the key message there for me is how do we create a culture that everyone is part of and feels ownership mm. for, um, that it's their culture. And often because it's out of consciousness, you have to bring it into consciousness to ask the question about how do we want, what do we want our culture to be like? Mm -hmm. So you've got that top-down approach um, idea of the, here you are, here's our mission, here's our vision, here's, our, here's some of the values that we'd like you to live out type of a, um, approach. Or we're talking about a kind of a groundswell movement from the body of the organisation, the people on the ground. Um, and whose responsibility is it to be driving the culture? Hmm. Uh, just going back to where we where we started from around the high performance side of things, you know, this is sports performance we're talking about, or high performance in business, where you're defined by success, you're defined by your achievements, and you know when things are going great and you're winning things or you're achieving things, then you've got a very clear um, direction there, you've got a very clear objectives. But I, I think, in my experience, 
you see a lot of changes, maybe for the better, but it might take a while to, to happen when things don't work as well, when actually there's failure or someone's not achieved, because you become more reflective. We've talked about this before around you know, the idea that it's in those moments of reflection where you think, well, that didn't work. And then you figure out why, and you figure out how to do it better, and everyone, everyone sees that that didn't work, so it's you know, open and honest and transparent, and you have, can have those discussions. What I'm interested in, and I'd really like to hear your thoughts on this, is it's fine when, if it's not working and you're becoming reflective because it's not worked, that's, we can, under, can understand that, but having that as a mentality on a continual basis when it is working. Yeah. Because if it's just hitting the marks and you're achieving and you're winning and everything, then that moment to take a step back and say, how are we doing this? Are, 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 we, st are we actually doing it as best as we could do, even though we are winning? Mm. So I think in the high performance system, I think that when you look at, say, maybe if you're ranked on a medal table or a number of, uh, um, you know, uh, progression of PBs, whatever it might be, then that's one thing. But building in a system, a culture, an environment, um, use the word culture again, using around behaviours that kind of force or encourage people to be reflective, even when it's going well. Mm. Yeah, I, how I might term it would be something about how do we build in process review? How do we build in a review of the processes that we're using, whether they be how we engage with each other or how we play the bit we're doing on the pitch mm. uh, as this is what we do around here, this is how we do it. But that sounds quite formal, process review. Is What about if yeah. I'm coming to work in the morning and how do I have my mindset that I'm going to be, I'm going to learn from this, even when it's going great, that we can mm. still be reflective? Gosh. Was that, that <laughs> willingness to, to encourage as well as support failure? Um, Being able to Fail, is well, well, I, I'm safe. Yeah, when safe. it's risky, when it's yeah. when it's going wrong, uh, as well as being um, objective when it's going well, so that you're not just saying everything worked. Yeah, uh, if it's successful. Yeah. Sorry, Rosie, uh, I, I challenge you though. No, no, no. Just started what you. No, I'm smiling because I'm thinking, and it's so difficult to articulate what you do quite naturally if you've done it naturally for ages. So I'm so part of my personality is I'm very reflective and looking and very in, internally focusing on what worked well and what didn't work well. And, and it took me therefore to uh, Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset rather than the fixed mindset. You know, there's, there's quite a body of knowledge now about how do we have a growth mindset? Instead of saying, I can't do it, you say, I can't do it yet. And it's, it's the repeated mantra that makes it become a habit. Yeah. You know? So I think that's what we're talking about, about culture is, who says this is what we're going to do and how do we reinforce it? So yes, it may be those who are more informed, someone in a leadership position might be saying, this is the culture we want and we want to take on a growth mindset and we'll be open to mistakes and, and then everyone then needs to buy into that or as mm. many as possible, doing the same thing repeatedly, repeatedly thinking consciously until it becomes habit. You know, mm. and that, that's, yeah. you know, that's just me trying to make sense of it in this conversation about, it feels so natural to me and I'm thinking, well, how do you then explain that? <laughs> well, you mentioned it before when we were just having coffee around um, surrounding an athlete, surrounding themselves with positive people, other athletes that they're training with. And I was wondering when you were saying that, I can understand positivity being a, you know, a, a powerful uh, motivator, but I wonder if actually if you strip it back and say it's not just being positive, it's just being a, around being transparent and being open and, and seeking to improve. Yeah. Because you might fail, yes. you might have a rubbish 
training session. But that's not not being positive. That's yeah. actually just saying, right, okay, how do we do this better? Yeah. How can we? And I really, I really related to it when you told that story before because it struck me that that's the kind of thing when I'm a, if I'm a coach, if I'm a leader for that session, and I'm setting up an expectation in my training group or in my um, or in my session itself, then those are the kind of the I guess the, the cornerstones I'm trying to say. Right, this session is for this purpose, and okay, you might not have had a great session today, but we can learn from it yeah. because we were, all, we were still thinking about the purpose of it and, and how we can get better. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is the, it's a shared responsibility. Anyone, anyone who's involved and engaged, that there's a shared responsibility to, to be demonstrating those behaviours. There is, a, there is a, an importance of the leadership mm-hmm. r- role to, to ensure that everyone is or that, that everyone's encouraged in, a, in an appropriate way. The leaders are still quite powerful or influential in developing the right cultures as well as um, infectious if, the, if it's going wrong. Yes, yeah. And, and I reflect on my own position as an athlete and then as a coach. As the athlete or as the netball player, I didn't know what the coach was doing. I was mm. just part of the, the environment. I was part of the system. And then you step out of the performer and you become the coach and you realise quite what a good coach you'd had and mm. what they knew that you didn't mm. know. And then you go away and do all of this coach education and realise, oh, there's a lot that we have a responsibility for because we're that much more informed. It is part of our responsibility as a coach. Mm to set the climate for mm-hmm. performance, to be enhanced. That's, you know, that's what coaching at the elite end is, is, is about. And so in that position, you, do, you are sitting in a place of wisdom and knowledge, that that is your responsibility. And I think the more um, advanced coaches in, in my day were the ones who recognised, and it wasn't just about the coach, it was then how do you get the players yeah. buying into that philosophy as well, that they took and a leadership responsibility on the pitch and it wasn't just about the coach being in control yes. of performance. I was going to ask a question around culture being a determinant of performance So, and you said yes to that early on. Um, but the idea that athletes succeeding in spite of or because of what's around them, where they've come from, who, what, what they've done and what they've been in. And we've got, I'm sure we could come up with lots of examples of athletes where they have succeeded in spite of. Because, and they might have come from fairly destructive or disruptive environments, uh, cultures, behaviours around them, but they've still succeeded. So I, I guess my question is, where's that coming from and could they have been better? You know, could they actually have achieved more? They might have, been, they might have won that gold medal, mm-hmm. they might have broken mm-hmm. that record or set that PB um, or won that competition. But potentially they could have been more if they'd had more. If, if we're saying culture is a performance determinant. Mm-hmm. What's springing to mind there is the some of the research around serial gold medalists, so the the super champions, the people that have gone to subsequent games after games and won, um, as compared to the really quite good champions, but didn't win all the time. And one of the features is this is this early trauma. Of varying different natures. It could be a loss of a loved one, or, or, or uh, failing in their studies, for example. And um, I remember a, I was at a lecture recently, hearing some of this, the, these findings, and someone put their hand up at the back and said, "Okay, right, I've got a six-year-old. How how hard does this trauma have to be? Um, because they've had a quite a nice life up till now." And um, 
so so the trauma in itself nurturing this this need to be recognized this need for reward right and so if we make things too cozy and comfortable does that does that nurture this this searching that is unique to high performers um, I remember going on a holding camp trip over to the Far East before the Beijing Games, so it would have been about 2004, and um, a coach performance director saying, this, this isn't good enough, this, these facilities aren't good enough, and the Chinese saying, they're good enough for all of our Olympic champions, and, mm -hmm. and it being yeah. quite run down, but them thriving in that environment. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily the facilities, it wasn't necessarily it being so comfortable, something about the place that, that nurtured this hunger and desire and motivation. Yeah. I'm really interested in it from a human perspective that said if, if some kind of trauma has triggered the physical and the mental response, how do we do that in a healthy way? You know, maybe that's the, maybe that's the trick for the, for the next step change is yes. how do we get that kind of performance enhancement? Because we know people can do it, it just happens to have been triggered by mm. trauma in the past. Well, how do we unlock that performance capability in a, in a more healthy, positive way? And I think you know, that's probably bringing us full circle around to why are we talking about culture? Because mm. what's the consequence of us getting it wrong? What's the consequence of pushing too hard beyond what's humane? Uh, and and it's, not, it's not healthy at all. So I think maybe that's our trick for the future, and I wouldn't call it a trick really, but that's the essence. How do we unlock potential? So that was, that was why I was smiling at your question. Yeah. Is we, we know there's so much untapped in human, humans full stop. I think the trick is unlocking it. Well, let's, let's dive into that bit then, because um, ultimately if a culture uh, isn't getting the best out of people, then it's manifesting at a human level. So, if people are experiencing stress on a day-to-day -day basis, what's, what's going to be going on there in terms of their, their psychological but their physiological response to mm. the environment, but also the, the demands placed upon them, whether that's work or whether that's uh, physical training? I, well, I think, you know, you, you were saying before, is this the next step, is this the mm. next focus at least uh, that maybe will, will unlock more performance? Um, it's very clear, if you think just from a pure physiological and physical perspective, that if you throw a training stimulus at some someone, and you throw it exactly the same at somebody else, they'll they'll, they'll react differently. They'll adapt differently in the minutes, the hours, and the days um, after that training. Now, most of that is going to be because of a variety of aspects of their genetic makeup, but that whole other side will be because of the environment that they're in, and those might be really tangible things, as in you're in a you're not eating enough, you know, or, mm. or you're actually you're, you know, you're not sleeping enough. So these become sort of social behavioural aspects that impact directly on the physiological status of the body. But just picking up on what you're saying about stress or strain or, or a cognitive challenge, so somebody is actually feeling unable to cope mm. or they're unable to make the right decisions or they, whatever it might be there, actually manifesting as a physiological response that mediates adaptation. There's a few bits of research in that area, and, you know, but uh, it's pretty complex, of course it is. But I think if we can unlock or at least un understand that area better, then we can now start tapping into training, 
improving training, uh, which hopefully then leads to improved performance. And the example I would always use on this one is when you see high volume athletes who are training, you know, your endurance athletes who's training maybe 20, 25 hours, even 30 hours a week a triathlete, a rower, a cyclist. When you're throwing that much at somebody, you know, you're looking really for it to get probably at that level quite small adaptations, but you're very close to the edge of falling off mm-hmm. and pushing into the overreaching area and then pushing into that overtraining area. And it's very easy to see that when that happens because that's a consequence that is disastrous usually. But it's very hard to see your approach to that cliff and it's very hard to see the continuum that there because if we go from there and that's being where we're at, I'm training but actually I'm starting to fall off the edge of this, I'm doing too much. I'm interested in that continuum that goes the other way and saying can we work with this, um, the stress, the strain, the environment that's around somebody to push them in that direction so they become, they adapt more, they're more adaptive and less destructive. Okay, so the, the delicate balance that a, a performer, uh, a sports athlete who's really trying to strive for, for their peak performance, delicate tightrope, if they underinvest in, in effort in terms of training, then they're probably not going to improve enough. If they overinvest, they're going to break. Yep. And the tipping point that might pull them either side could be something as subtle as poor nutrition inadequate sleep for example but equally could be the stress imposed by the yes. culture yeah mm-hmm. and yeah. then what's that happened what's happened at a physiological level there that, that somebody's going to experience yeah. that could tip them off the wrong way where, where a positive culture is supporting somebody and somebody else is experiencing stress well I think there's two at least two aspects here there is that direct um, physiological response to the stressful environment, in this case a cognitive environment because it's perceptual and it's, you're making decisions and you're processing it. So there's a, you know, you look at those some aspects around sort of the hormonal, the delicate hormonal balances that we, you need to have in, um, in place in the right way when you're trying to get into an adaptive state, an anabolic kind of building uh, state and how those might be disrupted by um, those stresses. But uh, potentially I think probably what you see is more around the behaviours that people make from that environment. And if those behaviors mean, I'll give you one example that involves immune function, which is probably slightly different, but it is um, the classic uh, you, you know, thing that can trip a lot of athletes up becoming sick, but becoming sick because of the physical and mental environment that's around them. And that's in the, you know, these, an athlete training very, very hard, and then having inadequate nutrition straight after training, which means you're in a compromised state, and then getting into public transport and having to travel two hours. You know, this is a very, very simple example, but it was, for this athlete, was destructive. Because- Get, Getting into public transport? Yeah, because there wasn't- Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> the poor. But, for, but for two hours, having to go back from their training environment back into central yeah. London. Yeah. Okay, that, so, that's, so that's, I'm saying this is, it's not a cultural thing, but it's a behavioral thing that you've, you know, you're, you're just exposing yourself to, uh, in this case, um, you know, not ideal conditions yeah, and okay. becoming destructively more, destructively more and more um, sick. Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? In the sense of, if you make things, again, if you make things too comfortable, that they don't develop some of that immune re- resilience. Yes. Uh, if, you're, if you mollycoddle the, the immune system, it becomes naive, doesn't it? It doesn't come robust to that, a bit of that environment. Yeah. But, yeah. but going too far, and that's just complex, difficult decision-making on a day-to-day basis. Should I take that mode of transport? Should I, should I take the car, for example? Yeah. It might be stressed at the other end with traffic or whatever it might be. 
but the, you know, for for most most people, some people, that's not an issue. You know, that's a, that wouldn't. But for some people, that could crack them. That could be yeah. the thing that makes makes them unable to cope. Uh, and then you have that physiological response to that that pushes you into a different territory where you, you stop ad adapting. And that mm. is our mm. cycle around uh, overreaching, going into overtraining. And generally, as we know from an overtraining perspective, people pushing harder and harder in, in spite of that that's around yeah. them. I think this, this area is a really hot topic. The overtraining, overreaching literature, the, the rates of injury being um, mediated by stress. That's fascinating in the sense that we always just think it was inputs and outputs of yeah. what's the training load, mm -hmm. what's the recovery, and, and thinking that it's a physical, hormonal, physically driven hormonal response, whereas it could be a, a stress-based mm -hmm. hormonal mm -hmm. response. And, and how something is perceived on it. There, there's some lovely research around the, the amount of stress that someone experiences and how much recovery time they require mm. um, to, to adapt from the same stimulus, all, all adjusted for relative, um, relative uh, effects. Um, there's some lovely research around, um, I say lovely, it's people breaking, um, overtrainings, is, in, is a higher frequency when people perceive stress from the expectation of not pleasing a coach, mm. for example. So the influence of, again, the leader yeah. of how, how I feel on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm more likely to overtrain if I'm not satisfying your expectations. Yeah. And that's a two-way thing, yeah. right? Yeah. In terms of my, my perception, but also how you frame it for yes. me as a coach. I was just, as I was listening in, thinking, gosh, the responsibility of a coach or someone who's in charge of the environment for them to understand a the human difference in yes. each of their performance and all the things that impact on performance and how to build a culture yeah, yeah. you know it's massive in terms of and therefore it is massive and the performance potential yeah. is is as just as big you know, we, we, I think we're only scratching the surface probably in this area in terms of what is still there to be gained in terms of healthy performance. I just wanted to performance. pick up on one thing because I think, you know, as you just alluded to there, you've got, you've got a responsibility to create a, a scheme, whatever it might be, or an environment for your performers, as this is in the responsibility of a coach, for those performers to thrive and to adapt and to all those um, positive aspects. I, uh, I've got a friend who, is, who runs a, a cycling coaching organization and, and he has around 70 or 80 athletes. Now he could, you know, that, that's a classic kind of thing for giving everybody the same training mm -hmm. program and, you know, makes for a great experiment. Mm. Give everyone the same training program, see how they react, but certain people will crack, you know, and certain people will thrive and then there'll be a bigger majority in the middle who will be about something. I remember I said to him last week, I said, I don't know what you're going to do when you're prescribing training, but I know you should look for variation, look for difference, look for variation in the training, look for variation, how you structure training from a day-to-day -day basis and a week-to-week -week basis. Because going back to all the things we talked about, overtraining, one of the key antecedents of overtraining is monotony. It's <laughs> around the same thing day after day, which in a high-volume endurance athlete, you're going to have that by, unfortunately, by default. There's mm -hmm. going to be a lot of mm -hmm. stuff that's in there. So I couldn't say to this, my friend, you know, this is the training session that that person should do. But I did say, I think you need to hold on to that principle of bring variation 
just for the sake of variation. Change yeah. it, chop and change it, you know, different sessions, different ways of achieving the same session, as in the same outcomes, yes. you know, have different yeah. ways of structuring an interval session just for the sake of variation. Yeah. Might sound a bit, um, not prescriptive, but might sound a bit kind of like, oh, okay, you know, but it does work. It yeah, does it's work. a good example of how something very s simple or that you're, again, you're reaching for certainty, so you're trying to, well, that, I know that works, that session works, but, but uh, I'm going to impose something completely different on the surface, but mm. actually it's going, to, it's going to do the same thing, yeah. whether that's in the training or whether that's in the, the environment itself. Um, I remember going to one country and visiting for a conference, and, um, and the, the endurance cyclists were doing their 100 kilometer, so three, three and a half hour session outside the velodrome. They were just going round and round the velodrome, and they did that three times a week. And they weren't because they, they weren't allowed allowed out onto the roads. Um, so <laughs> you think you're trying to manage one risk, but you're unlocking another. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> did they ever go in the other direction? I don't, they did actually. No, they went in the direction of the track. Good at leaning left. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. So so here we're talking about trying to find ways to manage the stresses that an athlete is going to experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, how, how can a leader or a coach and a co-worker be in that environment? How can they frame things differently so that it's taken from a, a threat or, or negative into a positive in terms of the way they turn up, the way they talk, where they behave, what what the things you'd be looking for, mm. encouraging, turning that stress into something that is seems a positive. I, I, my mind's going all over the place in terms of how do we role model the behaviours we want mm. to see? How do we when mm. we're when we're in the eye of the performers do what we want them <coughs> to do? So whether if we want. If we want a culture that's a positive culture mm. and has a positive mindset, we, we role model it. We use the language that we want them to be picking up on uh, unconsciously as well as consciously. And we bring it into the consciousness. You know, a lot of the work you know, a lot of coaches will do will be to stop, you know, take time out and debrief the process. What have we just been mm. doing? What's worked well? What hasn't worked well? What could we do differently? How do we challenge each other in a positive mindset? Um, so I think a lot of how we can up the ante is by really explicit process review that becomes habitual, that you don't even have to go, let's take a time out. People mm. just go, can we just, what happened there? You know, yeah. and stop the language that we don't like and keep going on the language that we do like so uh, I think it's absolutely achievable I think it's habitual how do we change our habits as coaches as performers into a mindset that is the is mm. the the additive is the mindset. Of course, it takes effort though absolutely. and requires it to be um, something that you're you're driving at you're preparing you're you're putting the work in to, to get it right, yeah. or to, to try and get it right. Yeah. Yeah. It does take effort, but if you let people do what they're really good at, you know, those things, for them, are the things they do naturally. And I think if you've got the opportunity as a leader to think strategically about how you set your team up, 
you can let those people in the team take a role that they can really thrive in. And if that's part of the value and the identity you're trying to achieve from a collective point of view, you've got now icons, role models that everyone else looks at and goes, that's the way we do it around yes. here. Yeah. You know, and I think you might not ever have this opportunity, but if you could build your training group or your um, practitioner team or whatever team you're working in and think about who can take each of those roles and who can do that, suddenly you've, you're cog you know, cognitively, consciously making that choice that I'm going to let that person thrive because they'll bring that part of the culture I'm looking for. I'm, I'm smiling. Can you do that in a training group <laughs> with athletes as well? I think yeah. you can. Well, I'm smiling because I, I was a great bench warmer for England. I didn't get on the pitch very often for Napoli. <laughs> I was the one who sat on the pitch, but I was the joker. You know, so I was the one that, oh, I'll sit next to Rosie because she's always laughing and joking. And that kind of became my, my role could was... Because you, you catch. <laughs> <laughs> Not good enough, it's clearly. Just, it's, it's quite a sterile environment. Let's just get a joker in. She's tall, she looks the part. Yeah, so there was, there was, there was a couple of us who quite often were on the, the bench and I was the one who just kept the mood light. You yeah. know, and that, yeah. I think there's a lot of that in terms of um, team selection mm. going into a game. Mm. You look around the, the uh, holding camp environment and you think, I don't think you're the decision maker in that sport. I don't think you're necessarily the, the operations manager, but you've got somebody who are who, who taking on those roles yeah. that everyone connects with. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. more than yeah. most connect yeah. to. The and their skill is the social stuff, not necessarily yeah. the, the performance. How yeah. important yeah. The, yeah. getting the culture and the team environment yeah. right when it really matters. Yeah. You, you can't hmm. necessarily, We've got all the logistics right. You can't. We've we've got everything perfectly lined up and and uh, time managed, um, but it's just draining the the happiness out of it. You don't want those people around necessarily. So we're we're talking about here. We're talking about the the need to prepare, the investing in in getting it right, and so it, as a coach. You've, you've got to be in the moment. You've got to pick up all of the information that you're receiving. And I, and I remember a session that I really thought was pivotal for, a, for an athlete and, and they didn't perform it. They copped out of the training session. They stopped and said, I can't do it. Right, right when we, just at the moment, am I... Do they have other athletes around them at the same time? No, whatever. It, it was a one-to-one, -one, but in that moment, I, I, my instinct was, You've got to understand how important this session is. <laughs> Wanted to kind of roast, um, but there's devil on my shoulder and an angel on one side, and thinking maybe the best moment is to support this person. Mm. And I was really torn because I want to get results for mm. you, help mm. you get there, but but I also want to nurture and support you so that you realise that in itself. Yeah. There's a tension there every day that a coach will feel when you see the results, when you see the session, when you, when you see the, how engaged an athlete is? I was just imagining the, the relationship, how the coach needing just to know that athlete so in, in, instinctively, yeah. to know when they're copping out and when mm. they have gone too far. So we're going back to that, this really fine balance between where is the edge of performance development and where mm. is it detrimental? And, you know, from a, from a more people, business, coaching team environment, a lot of our work would be when something happens like that, to actually nowadays go, what's just gone on there? And to actually yeah. socially unpick the dynamic that had just happened in that moment. Yeah. 
Um, because was it yours? Were you ex were you putting your expectation on them? Were they putting yeah. their expectation on you? So I think there's that which we can, in hindsight, process. What I also am picking up is the the pressure to use time effectively and efficiently. Yeah. The the pressure on the coach. The the pressure when you're in a sporting environment where there is a deadline date. You know, much more so than in business. You know, you've got a date when they perform at a world champions or a championships or an Olympics and that being part of the pressure that then lands on the coach as well. Yeah and, and if it's you didn't hit that time but I wanted you to hit that time there's this is quite yeah. clear cut but um, in a performance environment many of these things are wrapped up in emotion. Yeah. Mm. Something as simple as selection, me yeah. versus you, yeah. uh, so feeling valued but, but also getting the, the, uh, the moment but something that's wrapped up in in our own insecurity, something mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. body composition, how you look, how you, how you, what you're, what you're, what you're made of, you mm -hmm. know. So mm -hmm. those, these are quite emotive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's, if on a day-to-day -day basis, the leaders and the influencers need to be prepared to to be able to manage the culture, they're going to need to be even more astute, in tune when it comes to some of these emotive issues yeah and I and as you're speaking I'm thinking and it's not just picking it up from them it's knowing what's yours and owning your stuff mm. so that's what I'm also hearing okay. you know if you think of emotional intelligence is our ability to recognize our own emotions to manage them to tune into others and to work with that I think a, I heard there is uh, how do I know whether what's going on is mine mm. and I'm feeling the pressure and I'm projecting it onto them right or is it them and what am I picking up from them? So I, you know, recognizing that in itself is such, such an awareness piece mm. that if you don't know who you are, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, mm. um, it makes it even more difficult to tune into someone else. So, you know, part for me of part of the whole advancements in performance is how do we continue to challenge coaches and scientists to know themselves well and, and yeah. then to how to work just well with you, others. You mentioned a word there that just triggered a thought in my head and the word was selection and how that's such a, um, in team sports, if you're selected for, or you're on the bench, <laughs> uh, or you're selected for championships or an Olympic games, you know, to travel for the biggest event and how um, decisive and how uh, kind of troubling that can be. But the outcome of that often is, certainly in some of the um, sports I can think of, uh, where it's individuals in, in there, it, it can be very us and them. You know, the, the athletes think management's not selected me, you know, and, and they will become very reactive in a destructive way to that. And then that's, those things are, you know, cut the legs off culture because mm -hmm. those are the things where suddenly now you have a team of athletes who are the ones who have been selected and their mate who hasn't. You know, they've, they've got to work with each other in the same training group and the kind of you know the animosity that sometimes can happen there. So the simple things that can really undermine culture in a, in high performance sport, selection being a very mm. very mm. Um, not controversial as such, but a very decisive issue, and the clarity and the transparency of why somebody was selected, you know, and that person wasn't. Right. So so in that sense, the again the, the pressure goes up, the pressure the, the hope and ambition factor. goes yeah. up, uh, and so. Therefore, what does it require of the, the people in positions of responsibility? So you're saying clarity. 
absolute yeah. clarity. Yeah. These are the terms of reference for yes. in or out, yeah. and, and, and somebody will miss out. Um, yes, but you can also think of good examples in sort of self-organizing um, uh, environments and cultures and industries where the clarity of everyone's understanding their own role and where they sit within that of, um, and I'll make the parallel with a selection for, perform for a performance for a championship. The fact you're not going, you're fine with that because you realize somebody is better suited for that mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. But that might happen in an industry where everyone has a clarity of role, but when it's such a singular outcome of winning a medal, or in this case being selected and actually having a chance to perform, and when it's just that your career is based on that, that being so, you know, potentially the end of your career, um, mm -hmm. you can't just say, right, okay, I'll do a different job. That was it. That was your job, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I think you know you will. Uh, if you look back over the last 10, 15 years, some of those real hot spots in British sport, in high performance sport, some of those real issues around selection, mm. around the clarity and the challenge that comes from that. Um, I don't envy the the task of people mm. who have to do that, but mm. I also don't envy the task of people who have to prepare the groundwork for it. Saying what's our criteria? What's our? Yeah. Um, you know, you need to work so hard in that area to get it right because it's the it's the public facing, it's the athlete facing piece of the organisation and that can really, as I say, chop the legs off culture if that's wrong. I, I mean, I can feel it emotionally as you're talking, there's a sort of a yeah. sense of, ah, oh, you know, in terms of having, as a coach, having had to do it, having, you know, coach coaches where you're saying, you know, how do you do the what ifs before it even happens? Yep. And then being a performer and, and actually being dropped from the uh, squad. And now, there was a time when I was the coach and watched a player crying and thinking, why didn't she pull herself together, you know? But then I reflected back when I got dropped from the England squad, I just cried my eyes out. And I remember yeah. the coach looking at me, you know, and just, it was a lovely look of, you know, I'm sorry, but, and me absolutely knowing that it was the right decision. But emotionally, I just couldn't stop the floodgates, mm. you know, it was complete mm. and utter, you know, that's it. And Ed Winter, um, good old Ed Winter was our yeah. biomechanics sports scientist and looking at me and just feeling desperate for me. Um, and yeah. it's that whole emotional stuff that yeah. outcomes everything that we can't even do a what if with. Yeah. We didn't know it was going to happen. So in, in terms of the importance of uh, being really sensitive to the crunch moments when it means something to people on a day-to-day yeah. -day basis. Yeah. This concept about managing stress very specifically to get adaptation out of a, a, an athlete, but also because it feels right. It feels more contemporary, modern thinking, really, you know, <laughs> appropriately respecting the human as well as the, the fact that they're a performer. Um, can a balance be had in terms of being able to, to get good adaptation out of the physiological genetic response to, to a stimulus? Um, and therefore it rates of improvement as well as it feeling mm. nice, good, supportive? I think the answer is yes and I think the, the, the way you allow that to happen is, we talked before about variation being at the heart of it as a principle, so you're looking for, uh, to un yes to understand the individual more but your principle is coming in and saying we've got many ways of achieving the same outcome so let's embrace that, you know, don't always rely on the same types of sessions, don't always rely on the same stimulus, work with many more, you know, many more components there. Uh, and I think, I think that there is a potential to be unlocked there that hasn't yet been tapped into. 
Um, yeah, I, I like your perspective coming from the very, almost the cellular level. So, mm. so this is the evidence that's coming from us knowing humans and what gets in the way. And then there's the bigger cultural piece that, that I'm not sure yet we have the evidence culturally that if you bring performance and the person alongside each other and meld those, we're going to get the right, the, the step change we want. I think we're going on the belief that, yes, intuitively, that makes sense. Mm. In, in the past, most of the big, big countries who have been successful have either had a very dictatorial regime or a drug-laden regime or a very strong demanding regime. And maybe Britain is going to be the one that says, and we can do both. You know, we can have the really directive strong challenging alongside the complete and utter respect that we're dealing with human beings here and we are all are mm. human beings so how do we marry competition with cooperation you know how do we marry the hard with the soft in a belief that intuitively it's right and ph physiologically it's right and mentally it will be right yeah uh, and and that will take some guts on people who are used to driving for performance yeah and yeah. those who are coming from the more, you know, the performance lifestyle perspective of saying, we have to respect the human being because we'll get more from humans. We know that, yeah. you know, we know that from our business and our, and our people skills. So in, in that sense, the, um, the research that suggests that super champions had a trauma doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean a, talking about nurturing the, the trauma out of them. It means about perhaps it, it, that's the inner motivator. That's the bit that's driving that exceptional individual to do remarkable things. But how do we get that out of people who don't have that trauma, but that, but that want to achieve? Yes. And so, in that sense, the difference between saying very hard, come on, push harder, go do more, versus Oh, it's okay. Well, if, if your feedback says that you need to stop now, that's fine. Uh, as both are both are two ends of the spectrum. One is driving them to unusual things. One is in tune with the feedback from yeah. from yeah. somebody's own um, own responses. Yeah, and I think that requires both the performer and the, the coach yeah. really knowing themselves, really yeah. knowing what they want. You know, you go back to some of the business literature about motivation and Daniel Pink's work about you motivate people by them knowing what their purpose is, having autonomy and having mastery. You know, yeah. and that lends really well to sport in terms of if someone knows why they want to do what they want to do, you know, what is it they're really passionate about. And the coach and the setup allows them a sense of autonomy in some of the choices, i.e. they're not being told what to do all the time. Yeah. And they continue to demonstrate mastery, whether that just be really small steps at this level of performance improvement. Then you've got in the mix the humanistic things that lead to motivating people. What you just described there, purpose, autonomy and mastery, is effectively deep learning as well. Mm, mm. You know, and that could be, that's another parallel I, I always like to uh, make is that you know you're not teaching component parts you're teaching principles and purpose yeah, yeah. and allowing the athlete to discover for themselves uh, going back to the idea of setting a physical training session you're allowing them to discover that session for themselves and how it works for them how they adapt to it how they recover yeah. and how they're ready for the next time that they do it and 
there's some really good examples and I can think of a few coaches who work in this way where they say this is the purpose of the session but I'm gonna and I'm gonna design it in a way that you can only ever achieve it uh, so you can explore it and you can find out for yourself and you learn mm. from it so it's just it's deep learning in that yeah. sense yeah well, that, that in itself allows you as a leader or a coach to embrace both ends of the spectrum of I need to be I need you to be in tune give me feedback if we need to stop we need to stop versus the drive mm. uh, and push and graft um, by laying out that expectations I need your feedback for me to make good decisions mm. but it needs to be really in tune and uh, you need to be picking up the, your own subtle symptoms but you cannot get away with yeah. making this easy and light yeah. it yeah. has to, you have to be able to commit fully to it so that you're prepared so putting those boundaries on it means that the performers left no no uncertain terms i'm in this yeah yes but yes. still with room to explore it mm -hmm. and understand it and, and contextualize it in their own experiences and their own um understanding mm. it's lovely talking about it isn't it <laughs> have a go at doing it you know that's the challenge isn't it that it's it's a behavior change in both athletes yeah. and coaches in terms of i think the education behind mm. both because yeah. we're, we're shifting a culture well um I think that's an important moment for us to step back because we're talking about uh, good nutrition, good sleep for the athletes. But what about good nutrition, good sleep for the coaches, the leaders? Because, <laughs> yes. because they need to be rested, on it, mindful, picking up the, the perceptive insights. Yeah. If they are full on carbs and having a bit of a lull in the afternoon or sleep deprived because they feel like they've got to be at the side of the pool at 5.30 before everyone else because just in case the, the boss walks in, the, the culture can cause a lot of these things to spiral yeah. out of control. And yeah. I think some of the best work that I've seen is about not only nurturing the psychological skill of the, of the leaders and the coaches, but equally infusing some of these performance habits mm -hmm. into their day-to-day -day routine yeah. so that they are better equipped and more on it and making better decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I remember working with uh, a team, uh, a, a, a support team, working with a performance team on the pitch and working with this support team just saying, you know, whatever happens here will be replicated on the pitch. You know, if you squabble, they'll pick it up you know, and squabbling will happen in the, in the team as well. So it goes back to how, if we want to change a culture, how do we, if we're over here, role model those behaviours yeah. so that they are implicitly picked up by the performers as this is what we do around here. Yeah. We had, um, around sort of 2007, 2008, where we were getting this big lurch in the system of thinking we've got to start developing the interpersonal skill and we've got to nurture that. And... I think my observation of some of the time where teams got together and shared their work and we would get a, a replication of this scientific conference uh, egotistical criticisms of each other each other's work where the work gets presented and then you've got five minutes of questions which is which is basically like getting shot for five minutes mm -hmm. on the receiving end but that's wrong, that can't be right, you've got this wrong, your yep. work's poor for these reasons. And, and that we were mimicking that in a performance world, which was entirely inappropriate for nurturing, learning in complex 
and difficult scenarios where yeah. you, there's no textbook on it. There's no process you can yeah. follow that, that will yield good results that are publishable. Yeah. So we'd have everyone come in, laptops open, cross their arms, oh yeah, that's the best you've got, is it? And then, any questions? And we had to unpick that quite quickly. And we had to, I mean, I, I remember at the time I felt a big, big rise in my own adrenaline when I thought, I'm gonna call this out because I can't let it happen anymore. I'm responsible for this area and this team. We can't have this. Um, set the ground rules from that moment on. Um, and that was difficult actually mm. to, to, to make it quite public mm. and point the finger at somebody who's pointing the finger in some ways. Yes. Yeah. Um, as well as the fact that how infectious that is when it comes from somebody in a position of influence and responsibility. Yes. The young ones will look up and think, well, that's the way you behave. Yeah. And it goes back to the really deep cultural roots that if academia has been built partly on how do we critique and learn wisdom by yeah. challenging and academia gets brought into sport and that's the way we've always done it yes. why wouldn't we still do it until someone calls it out and says actually when we come to performance sport mm -hmm. and using science we have to have different behaviors because that doesn't work here it's not complementary to performance mm. enhancement so I think that goes right back to how do you shift culture? You have to recognise what's going on and then say, is this the culture we want? Is this what's needed? And if it isn't, how do we call it out and say, how do we put in place the culture we do want? What I think is needed? Just broadly on that, that point around academics and academia and the interaction of academia and high performance, I think you can look around the, around the international stage where you'll, still, you'll see national, um, international federations uh, institute systems or Olympic systems within the, where, where they actually are entwined with an academic thing and I think that's always going to put a level of constraint on it um, I'm not saying you have to break away completely from that but when you see that work well it's in a, it's the exception I think and I, I'm, I'm not going to disrespect academia but their, their framework of um, their reference framework and their, if you like terms of reference and their judgments are just different you know, we talk about critique, critique is fine. Mm. Everyone needs to be in a position where you could critique. It's actually doing it because you're trying to achieve something, you're trying to achieve more impact, or you're trying to help somebody understand and grow and learn. So it might be critique that might, whatever way you look at it, it might be taken with a bit of heart of, hmm, someone's critiquing me, but it's actually for the purpose yes. of helping that person. Yeah. Whereas what you've been describing from that kind of very dry academic is, is self-aggrandization. It's just actually me saying how which I know m how much more I know than compared to you. It's infectious in the sense that it means that you're going, you're not necessarily going to share the mistakes, the disappointments, yeah. the failures, yeah. and be honest exactly. and vulnerable. You're not allowed to fail. You're not allowed to. But that that in itself would pr present a whole raft of opportunities to get valid input mm. to yeah. to make it better yeah. by by talking through the areas that you're struggling with a little bit. Uh, you can't imagine standing up at a scientific conference saying. Right, well, here's, here's what we found, but oh, I really struggle with this. Mm. Has anyone got the answer? Um, yeah. Because you're protecting yourself, you're yes. defending, yes. Yeah. literally you're, it's called defending your paper. And, uh, and that, that can't, I, don't, I can't see how that's relevant going forward for academics as well, as they are going to need to be able to demonstrate impact yes. and culture appropriate connection with knowledge. I can't see how that's relevant looking forward, regardless of the performance industry it's in. Yeah.
massive culture change challenges, then I, you know, I bring it back to the piece in sport. Maybe, maybe we didn't get it quite right in the past, and it's the growth mindset of we haven't got it quite right yet. Mm. So what do we need to do? You know, if this is the culture that's come, that is still coming, and this is who we're wanting to influence, what's all about? I, I don't think it is still coming. I think I think in the British system, I think the high performance network has built its own identity, its own structures, and you know that di- that. Um, movement away from academia, it used to be a lot of it hosted in academia, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, mm. I'm saying now it stands on its own two feet as its own performance okay. system and that's defined by pragmatism, yeah. you know ultimately yeah. that's, we've got to get stuff done yeah. that's useful yeah. uh, and so that's, that judgement there is, does it have any impact, is it useful yeah. and then we talk about can you actually do it and can you do it well, can you do it with quality, academia probably come in at the quality set. End of, end of things, how do we do this with more rigour, more, yeah. more precision, that's not precise enough, you shouldn't be doing that. But we might say, well it still has a benefit. Mm. You know, we know it's not precise mm. enough, and, and that's maybe, this is where the two worlds do meet and you can say, we know it's not precise enough, but it's still pragmatically useful. Yes. So it's just having that flexibility to work with that continuum, because it's not one or the other, it's just a continuum. Yeah. And we let the academics get on with the bits they can do really well with great precision, yeah. the fundamental science. because. And you, and you pull from that back into the, you know, how do we actually make sense of this in use yeah. it? Okay, so some of the behaviours, some of the, uh, the the things you would observe and tune into, it's going to be highly dependent upon the, the context and the the demands placed upon those individual pockets. It could be whole spheres such as academics versus sports, for example, mm. uh, versus uh, one department in one corridor versus another. It's hugely context Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. those examples we're talking around, we moved a little bit away from culture because we're talking about content and how it's manifest yeah. in different organisations, but it still comes back to that phrase of us and them, that there's a disconnect with the people around you that you think, you know, they're not doing it in the same way that we want to do it or they're doing it badly. Or So that us and them aspect, I feel, is what can be very destructive. Um, and that, I think that those examples we've talked about do, you know, suffer from that. Mm. Okay, so we're talking about the, the culture of sport and, and how that plays out within and how it connects with a, uh, a wider uh, industries and organisations. The, the culture of sport, but how does sport learn from culture or reflect culture? And how does culture learn from or affect sport? I know it's a big question, <laughs> but let's have a go. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, I get taken back to the differences in different countries when you see different mm. countries perform and how that reflects their their um, their native culture. So, coming from the sport of netball, you know, you saw the Australians and the New Zealanders, and the New Zealanders having a very different style of play that reflected a different mm. style of country. Right. And I remember listening into. The, New Ze- the head of New Zealand Olympic Association who said whenever they brought a New Zealand team over to a Games, they would research the culture of the com- country that right, they were coming okay. to, to get a sense of what are the origins. Mm. And just loving that, because often, often I, I sense we lose our own identity if we're not very clear about what our identity is. So I think That's interesting. Mm, places like mm. New Zealand have a very clear identity. I think Great Britain, we have a challenge in our identity, you know, because we're made up of England, Wales, Scotland, 
and Northern Ireland, you know, in terms of our Olympic teams. So what is our cultural identity? Mm. Uh, so that's what that resonates with me about the fascination of how does sport reflect society and how does society reflect sport? Mm. And certainly at the moment of us taping this, you know, you've got the Russian drugs campaigns going on and all of that coming out and how is that how yeah. is sport replicating society and society sport yes as you were talking there around that international perspective you can think of um, pockets of or countries where there are pockets of athletes who East African running for example mm -hmm. you know that is a representation of, of Kenya Ethiopia and that area and how those athletes represent that that country and, and the real identity they that they have of themselves, but everyone else looks at them. And I was also thinking around, um, for example, India. You know, India, one of the most populous countries in the world, yet has minimal impact on the Olympic stage. Mm -hmm. So here you have a, a culture that does not permeate into a sporting, mm -hmm. uh, high performance um, environment, setup culture, whatever it is, yet. Yet, yes. And if somebody yeah. unlocks that, yeah. yes. you know, that yeah. might be where you now have you know, something to see in, in years mm. to come. So, so we're talking there about the, the fact that we can almost, you didn't need to see where they're from, but you could I'd pick up some of the clues mm. um, from the way they play, the mm. way they turn up, mm. the way their mm. team represents, represents. I think, I think we, we've got a risk of talking it between ourselves because we only ever see it through our eyes. Yeah. And our experience will be always in our context. Is that not enough for everyone? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But we are we're British, and we, you know, we've been brought up in our, in our country with our culture. So trying to understand somebody else's what drives and what are the motivations, what are the values, yeah. I think that's quite difficult to do. I think it's difficult to do, and I think it's the next level of learning. So if I look at how we work in business, we get people looking at what their skills and capabilities, and then the next level of learning is around their emotional awareness and emotional intelligence and their awareness of their personalities. And the third level is what's going on culturally. Right. And because the culture stuff is so out of consciousness, because mm. we, I, you know, I've mentioned it before, the fish is the last person to know it's swimming in water. So we don't necessarily pay attention to it because it's out of our consciousness. Yeah. That doesn't mean we can't lift it into our consciousness by asking ourselves to pay attention to it and recognize it. And I, I'm aware of a lot of literature in the business that says those companies that are successful into the future will be those companies that pay attention to cultural intelligence. And so I'm wondering what the carryover is back into sport then on mm. that, whether it's cultural differences to do with countries or whether it's literally cultural differences to do with the culture we form within our team or yeah. our, our sport or our okay. mm. institute of higher education. So culture is at a massive level countrywide and it goes right down to organisational and team culture. And it goes down to right down when I turn up for training in the morning or I turn up for my yeah. job of how I behave, yeah. you know, yeah. why I'm there. The, you know the kind of the classic example of of um, of NASA. You know, um, in the 60s and 70s, when there's thousands of people working there, you always tell this story, Steve. And the president comes in and says, um, you know, why are you here? And he's asking a cleaner who's sweeping the floor. He says, I'm here to put a man on the moon. Yeah, yeah. You know, everyone's yeah. got a purpose. Everyone's yeah. got a, a yeah. role for being there and a sense of identity of why they belong. 
and what they're recognised for and what they're valued for. Yeah. Not just their values, but what they are valued for by yeah. other people. Okay, so let's wrap some of that up um, in terms of the, the way in which we can look forward to, to positively nurture a culture uh, in sport and, and in the wider world in terms of performance-based industries. When it comes down to sort of how it works around here, how, how, how do leaders, how do professionals engage with that and work with it so that it's, it's something that's understood and, 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 and developed? I'm smiling because you're, you're asking the consultant question about how do we help organisations do what they do? It's a, mm. That's a big question. And I think if I were to put it to the, the real um, top line, it is around how do we continue to ask the questions that are around our purpose and our values and around <clears throat> asking. If, if we are about innovation in, in this business, Steve, what today have you done that's innovative? How okay. have you been thinking that's innovative? And the, the leader who walks the floor and asks people, what have you done today to be creative? Mm. That continues to keep in people's minds, this is, this is who we are and what we do, is bringing it to life. And so if that's the performance co coach that's sort of at, at the start of the session or at the end of the session and is really clear about what are we doing here today and why are we doing it and mm. what have we done well and what haven't we done well and how have we lived being us? You know, I think that's part of... So there's, there's almost two parts to that response. So how do we ask the questions about purpose and values? The, pur the purpose and values is the bit that I immediately connect to or we need to be thinking about purpose and values. Mm. But actually... Is that the first part of your response, asking questions, mm. is checking in with how's it going around mm. here, yeah. um, is just as vital as the topic that you choose, whether it's innovation or purpose or values, that the consultative, the engaging, the yes. collaborative nature of, of influential people and from down, but, but the, the membership mm. asking those questions yes. on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I think so, and I think without trying to move into the business speak of using things, words like mission or, or values, identity, and, and purpose, they're not, they're, not, they're not business words, but they are all about your role and how you contribute and how you're feeling good about yourself in terms of, you know, I come into work today and what I can do is being valued by somebody else. And the clarity of that and having a leader who can bring that out in people and let people... Um, thrive in what they do and be identified for what they do because everybody will have a, a really important role to play uh, and everyone will have a strength. That for me is my take on it, you know, when you were saying how do you actually make this happen is you, you give people clarity in their role but not just in their own role but their understanding of everybody else's role. So you really, you know, now you have a team who understands what everyone does, where you're trying to go and why it's important and what the purpose is. Okay, so I'm keen to wrap things up around this idea of optimizing human performance and optimizing the human within that but also getting great performance what would be your your top tips or your, your major observations about what you need to be mindful of to get that balance right mm. um, I think it comes back to the idea that everyone will have something that they're really good at so if you're working in a team of individuals and your team makes that culture makes that company makes that organization you let people thrive in what they can do really, really well, and you make sure that they take an identity within that, and they're recognised for that. 
And I think for me, you know, we briefly touched on in our conversation around icons, role models, peers that will set the tone, will set the example, will set the direction. Everyone has a chance to do that because they, everyone can contribute in that way. They might not be the person that everyone looks at for leadership and inspiration, but they bring a quality to the environment, to that culture that everyone values. Mm. And so letting people do that, letting people um, thrive in what they're really good at. Mm. My take would be if, if the person is in a position of responsibility, being really clear about that the purpose of why people are doing what they're doing. What are we here to do? What, what, what are we trying achieve, to achieve? And being clear about themselves, their contribution to that, so knowing themselves. So I think if you're going to bring out performance in others, to know thyself well first is part of the gift and the skill to be able to help bring out performance in others. So that mm. would be a real, uh, you know, know your purpose and, and know yourself would be mm. two really important things in that for me. My, my top tip would be about role modeling it um, and that's not just the leader that's that's everybody uh, that's that's the moment that you walk into a building and that you're greeted warmly mm. and that you you are engaged right from the moment and that's that's the man on the moon yeah. role mm. as well as as well as when something there's a bit of disturbance in the force when somebody isn't necessarily get it get the balance right that everybody or collectively called out call, calls it yeah. out in yeah. a productive um, but intolerant way and I want this to be better for everybody yes. yeah um, mm -hmm. and that requires I think a bit of bravery yeah. on yeah and and guts to, to adhere to it for a little bit of a disturbance it's going to make things stronger and, yeah. and, and better uh, I think that would that would be important Otherwise, it can spiral downward. Mm. That's, that's mm. spiraling upward, I think. Yeah. Well, as you would have heard, culture is such a complex and tricky area, almost sprawling at times, but offers so much potential when it comes to getting the best out of people and performance. If you'd like to hear more from Jamie and Rosie, you can follow them on Twitter at Jamie Pringle and at Rosie Mays 49 and me at Ingham underscore Steve and at support underscore champs. And if you'd like to subscribe to these podcasts, you can do so on iTunes and YouTube or through supportingchampions.co.uk. Join us next time when I'll be talking to Jan Lemure and the phenomenon that has become the infographics.